Or Lord Jesus, this morning as we turn to the, the text that you have left for us, this love letter telling us of your promises to us and the things that are true of us, would you remind us that we are together in you and that we will one day be with you to see your unshielded glory. Oh, this morning, Lord Jesus, give us a glimpse of that glory. Would you, by your word and by your spirit, would you grant us a vision of just how beautiful you are and just how much we need you? We ask you to grant us this in your mighty name. Amen. Tomorrow's Veterans Day. It's a wonderful blessing that any nation has for uh, a strong military and, and those who sacrifice so much to defend the freedoms of a country like ours. If you're a veteran this, here this morning, please uh, hear my hearty thank you for serving our country in this way. One of the hardest things, one of the greatest sacrifices that veterans make is being separated from those they love so much. Uh, back before there were digital communications around the world, this was especially acute you might not see someone you loved for months or years, or in the most heartbreaking of examples, you might never see them again at all. One such example of this was the father of a woman named Peggy Eddington Smith. In 1944, her father was deployed to Italy as a part of World War II. Peggy's father never made it back. But it turns out, 59 years later, a letter that was written from her father arrived on Peggy's doorstep. This is what part of that letter read. It says, uh, I love you with all my heart and soul forever, your loving daddy. Now, Peggy was so young that she had never actually met her father at an age that she could remember him. But she described this experience as overwhelming emotionally. She said, that letter gave me knowledge of him. It is, it's as if he poured out his heart to me. It's a beautiful thing to think about a, a letter somehow preserved through a long period of time that captures someone's heart to you, that pours out their heart to you. I think one of the reasons why the passage in front of us is so beloved to the church down through the centuries. It's as, because it's as if we are unsealing a letter 2,000 years preserved from Jesus to each and every one of us as Christians. It lays bare the heart of Jesus for his disciples. And not just the original disciples. For you and for me. Before us, we see in this very famous section of Scripture the things Jesus loves and what he longs for most for his dear church. And as we study it together this morning, brothers and sisters, I hope our hearts are lit aflame for the Jesus that prayed this lovely prayer for sinners like you and me. This morning, we're going to see it in three sections in verses 20 through 26. It's the tail end of this high priestly prayer. Three sections. They are two prayers Jesus has for us and a promise that he made to us. Two prayers and a promise. First, the 
first prayers in 20 through 23, he, he prays that we would be unified in him. That we would be unified in him. Second, in verse 24, second prayer, we see that he prays that we would be welcomed with him. That we would be welcomed with him. And then finally, in 25 through 26, a promise. A promise that we would be indwelled by him. That Jesus himself would come and live within us. Now, we are at the tail end of the high priestly prayer. If you're with us last week, Jesus had just spent the time praying for two different groups, praying for himself and praying for those first disciples. The reason why is because Jesus' hour on this earth had finally come. His time with the disciples had been ticking down like a, a clock. You could hear the seconds ticking down uh, as John's gospel moves forward. What comes next is the, his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and as his time grows short, Jesus draws closer to his disciples and, and prays that they'd be ready for what comes. And last week, it was very sweet the way Jesus loved those first disciples to the end. Remember, he had spent years with them on the earth, teaching them, serving them, loving them. And now he does the most loving thing you can do. He prayed for them. But notice in verse 20, Jesus now turns his attention from those first disciples to Christians like you and me. In verse 20, he says, I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is Jesus praying for every Christian that believes through the message passed down by his first disciples. And what is it that he prays for? Well, in a word, it is unity. You can see it come out three times in these verses, in 21, 22, and 23. He repeats that he is praying for their unity. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And verse 22 the glory you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. In verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Even if you're thick-headed like me, if he says it enough times, you get what he's going for. Jesus wants Christians to be united. And let's be honest. It is a, not a foregone conclusion that anyone, much less Christians, would be united. And when there's a lack of unity, man, the consequences are so, so high. Uh, when I was a, a kid, my brother and I were kind of a, a dynamic duo. We would uh, get into all sorts of trouble together. And at one particular time, we went on a canoeing trip. We were with a group of friends or three or four different canoes. And we started off near the front of the line. But... <sighs> You know, older brother, younger brother, every now and then they don't see things exactly the same way. And so our canoeing, our paddling was not exactly in sync. And so even though the river was fairly straight, our canoe kept on zigzagging. And eventually we came a little too close and people had to push us away from their canoes. And eventually we managed to get ourselves stuck on a sandbar. We flipped over a couple times. At one point, we, the paddles were being used like pugilist sort of sticks, you know, to kind of get after each other. Uh, we, we ended up arriving at our destination dead last by a long shot because we could never get on the same page. We were just not united. 
Now, the, the history of the church is filled with examples of what happens when Christians fail to be united. Infighting, church splits, people getting burned by church and just saying, you know, maybe I can do this Christian thing without other Christians. And yet here is Jesus praying that his disciples would be one. So in other words, unity is not optional. So how in the world do we actually uh, uh, reach this unity? Well, the way Jesus prays for us actually informs the basis for our unity and how we are to go about pursuing it. Now, it's not just any sort of unity. It's not unity the way the world defines unity. No, it's a unity Jesus himself defines for us. So we need to turn our attention to three aspects of it. First, it is a unity that's based on the word of God. It's a unity based on the word of God. You think about how it is that Christians happen, how they come into being at all. According to Jesus in verse 20, it is through the word passed down by his first disciples. Notice he said that he didn't pay, pray, not praying at this point for the first disciples, but all those who believe in me through their word. Now, Jesus is assuming a few things here. He is assuming that the circle of his disciples will expand, that the original 12 disciples, the 11 of them that are left at this point, that will not be the entirety of his church, that there will be more people that come to follow Jesus in the days ahead. He also assumes that the way that will happen is by his disciples faithfully passing down the message that they have been given. We would call that the gospel. Jesus says that this group exists because his first disciples will faithfully pass down the gospel and people will believe in him through their testimony. Now, to say this point is disputed today among scholarship is a vast understatement. There, there are many people with letters at the end of their name, like PhD, that will tell you that we have no clue what the first disciples believed. And if we do know what they said, we certainly can't trust it. was consistent with what Jesus taught. But friend, if, if you have questions about that, let me just say that the more I have studied the Bible and the deeper I've dug into these objections, the more convinced I am that we know exactly what Jesus taught his first disciples and that it is the exact thing that Jesus has said would happen has happened. And if you have questions about this, I actually preached a whole sermon on it. Uh, it was back on May 5th. You can look it up on our website. Um, and I go into great detail that I can't go into this morning on how we can have confidence that the message that Jesus gave us has not been corrupted or lost. I invite you to look that up. Uh, also, I have some books I could recommend for you after the service. If you come to the front, there'll be somebody. They'd be glad to put one of those books in your hand. Allow you to at least examine the evidence of why we can know that this word has been preserved. But let's realize all of us that are Christians, it's not because we have sat down and had coffee with Jesus ourselves. It's because the message that Jesus entrusted to his disciples, the very gospel, was preached and passed down and eventually written down. And we are now, 2,000 years later, this very group that Jesus says would be brought together and united by his word. The second basis for our unity is in verses 21 through 22. It's a unity based on the very Trinity itself. It's a unity based on the Trinity. 
The relationship between the eternal Godhead, a Father, Son, and Spirit, is the basis for our unity. Look at how he says this. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, that's talking about the Father, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Not mind-blowing enough, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Lest you think Jesus is incapable of blowing your mind on a regular basis. He gives us here one of the deepest, richest truths about what we are as Christians in our relationship to God. He says our unity as Christians finds its origin in the very community of heaven, the three persons of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that forever God has existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Equally God, yet distinct, not confused with each other, but truly united. Truly, you can say they are one, even as they are three. Jesus says, just as there is this unity and diversity within the Trinity, that within the church, there is to be the same sort of unity and among its diversity. Even though there are many of us by number, a few hundred for us this morning, thousands and thousands in Indianapolis gathering to worship this morning, millions around the world, hundreds of millions down through the ages. And yet, because we have been brought into the relationship, the community of the Trinity itself, it is true that we are one. Oh, there's a lot more that could be unpacked there, friend, but do you feel the weight of that truth? That your relationship to another Christian is based on the relationship between God himself in the Trinity. Third basis for our unity. It's a unity designed for the world to see. It's a unity that is made to be seen. He defines it's not a, a hidden sort of unity. It's not the sort of unity that we have on paper somewhere that no one would ever be able to notice. No, it is a unity that is meant to be seen. You see it in verses 23 and in verse 21. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The unity the Christians have is for a purpose. It is to be seen and it is to be compelling to draw the world to know who Jesus is and to worship him by bowing the knee to him. He said the same thing in 21. We skip past it. We'll run back there for a second. I and you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is here speaking of a compelling telling sort of visible unity amongst his church that when the world sees it they notice something must be different about these people I wonder what sort of God they serve Jesus by telling us this visible unity he excludes a number of types of unity that the world would tell us 
are valuable. The sort of unity that says it doesn't really matter what you believe. The sort of unity that works toward the lowest common denominator sort of theology. You know, just whatever we can all agree on and not fight over. The sort of unity that is really along the lines of all the things the world values. Race, socioeconomic background, political affiliation. Jesus rules all of these out saying his church will be built on the unity of something entirely different. The message of the gospel, their relationship with God himself, and their mission to reach this lost world. Now, brothers and sisters, realize that when Jesus tells us that this is the sort of unity he prays for his church, that when Jesus prays for something, he gets it. That the true church of Jesus Christ will bear the marks of the things he is here praying for. And that has implications for the way we live as Christians today, 2,000 years later. Uh, first, realize that this unity requires community. That this idea that we can be individual Lone Ranger Christians, free agents, you know, we'll, we'll just slide in and out of Christian community. Maybe we'll visit one church one week and another church and never, never going too deep, never getting to the point where we have any obligation toward anyone or anyone has obligation on us. We'll just kind of float around in this free agent zone, taking what we like and leaving the rest. Well, well, Jesus just rules all this out. That is not the sort of unity he here describes. The unity Jesus describes requires the community of a local church. And if you're here this morning and you are not connected to a local church, let me just encourage you, whether it's our church or another faithful gospel preaching church, the, Jesus expects you to be a part of a community of people so, on the basis of his word. Uh, I would love to help you find a church. If ours isn't the right fit for you, we are certainly not the only gospel preaching church in Indianapolis. But let's banish this idea that we can do the Christian life on our own and church itself and mem church membership is optional. Jesus here tells us that the unity of his church requires the community of local churches. The second thing is we need to keep rightly the basis for unity that Jesus gives us and not let the pressure that the world puts on us become a false sort of basis for unity. It's so easy to fall into the language and thought patterns of the world around us, to, to think that we should, as a church, organize around identity politics or, or nationalism, that we should look for people that are all just like us, that we immediately get everything about them because we grew up in the same neighborhood and we went to the same schools and we speak the same language. And again, there's not, it's not as if those things are completely to be ignored. Crossing cultures is diff difficult. I get it. I'm a transplant from South Florida to the Midwest. I hugged a bunch of people that didn't want to be hugged my first couple years here. I get it. And yet as Christians, we have to remember that as wonderful as all those other things are, that the basis for our unity is the very gospel of Jesus Christ itself. It's the same gospel. We serve the same God. We're on the same mission to reach the world. If we try and build a church on these other basis for unity, somewhere along the way, 
we will lose our way and we will we'll find ourselves compromised, either in abandoning the gospel or fracturing into smaller and smaller groups or losing our effectiveness to reach the community. The only way our, we as a church can remain faithful is if we keep our basis for unity for the very thing that Jesus tells us we must have. Now, realize also how important it is for us to remember the balance that we are both not the only church that Jesus is talking about having this unity and that there are many places and people that would call themselves churches and Christians that we must not imagine that we are actually united to in the way Jesus describes. We need to be able to do the hard work of discernment theological triage to know the difference between uh, something that is core to the gospel itself and something Christians can disagree on. You know, if a church does not believe that the Bible is actually the word of God, and there are many that don't, if the church does not believe that Jesus actually died for sinners, that he actually rose from the dead to conquer the grave, and there are many that don't, if a church does not believe that we are to reach the world with the message that we must repent of our sins and find salvation in Jesus as a gift from him, and there are many that don't. Brothers and sisters, if that is the case, then that is not a true church. And it's not us being arrogant to say we are not united to them. That is just taking seriously what Jesus and his apostles first said. The very gospel must remain intact for there to be any basis for the unity of the church itself. On the other hand, we need to realize that there are many things that, yes, churches disagree on. We are not Presbyterians here in this church. There are rightly differences between local churches, and there are good reasons why they should not meet in the same building under the same leadership structure. That's okay, and we should even be able to, if they are preaching the gospel, we should be able to celebrate when other churches win victories for Christ. We are members of the big K kingdom of God. And that means that we are all up in heaven, members of the same church, the one universal church of Jesus Christ. That's why we try to make it a practice to pray for other churches regularly as a part of our prayers here on Sunday morning to remind us we are not the only Christians in Indianapolis and we're certainly not the only Christians in the whole world or down through the ages. And yet there is such sweet unity. When the basis is right, when you remember the things that Jesus told us unite us. Have you ever had that experience where maybe, maybe you walk into a church for the first time and you meet someone and it feels like you've known them forever even though you just met? It's because there's something deep down that you both have that's true of you that's truer than all the other true things in your life. You are blood-bought disciples of Jesus. And even if you grew up in a different part of the world or work completely different types of jobs or have a different age or stage of your life, you have that in common. And that's a unity that transcends all the other sorts of unity the world would tell us are so important. First thing Jesus prays for is that we would be unified in him. The second thing he prays for is not looking so much as the here and now where we're living. It's actually looking at the future. He prays 
that we would be welcomed with him, that we would actually be welcomed to the very throne room of heaven. Look in verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus gives a second request. It's really in the form of a, of a statement of his desire. But remember, when Jesus desires something, he gets it. His desire is that we would one day be welcomed into the very courts of heaven, to the very throne room of God, and that we would gaze upon Jesus himself in his resurrected and ascended glory. Now, what is Jesus speaking of here? Well, down through the ages of church history, there were eras where Christians spent more time thinking about this thing Jesus is describing. The medieval church often referred to it as the beatific vision. The idea that the greatest of all joys that a person could ever experience is to actually see God. That the beauty of all beauties, the happiest a human heart could ever be, is to see God in his unshielded glory without fear, without guilt. Now, that's not just an idea that some monks came up with out in the desert. No, that comes from Scripture itself. You can think of the, 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 the difficulty that Scripture tells us of seeing God. Back in the Old Testament, we're told that no one can see God and live. Moses, even, that God's great prophet who's brought up to the top of Mount Sinai, even he doesn't see God face to face in unshielded glory. God has to hide him in a rock and let Moses seal, see his afterglow as he passes by. And yet here is Jesus promising his church that one day they will be welcomed into heaven, that they will be changed in such a way that their eyes will actually see him. And friends, when you see him, it will change you forever. The great writer Dante in his uh, Divine Comedy, maybe you're familiar with Dante's Inferno, he starts off in the lowest ring uh, of hell and he ascends stage by stage up from that to purgatory or the purgatorio and then finally into paradise or heaven itself. And in Dante's imagination, as he tries to imagine what this beatific vision would be like, when he actually laid eyes on God. This is how his poetic mind brought that to life. He said this, Oh, ever-brimming grace, whence I presumed to gaze upon the everlasting light so fully that my vision was consumed. I saw the scattered elements unite, bound all with love into one book of praise in the deep ocean of the infinite. This is Jesus reminding us, as relational as he is, as close as he is drawn physically by becoming one of us, by taking on flesh to become the man Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus is the very God of eternity. 
And one day, if you trust him to save you, you will actually see him in his glory as God of all eternity. We all have deep within us a sense of the transcendent, a sense that there is a a beauty that we are all made to enjoy. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Let me just point out that you know that this transcendent longing is a real thing. Have you ever thought about why you find a sunrise on a beach so jaw-dropping? Have you ever thought about why the highest snow-capped mountains take your breath away? Have you ever thought why the Great Barrier Reef just makes you go, wow, and for a moment, even just for a moment, you forget about yourself and you're caught up in something so much bigger than you? It could be just because you are uh, a bundle of neurons firing and all of this is random chance, that that sense of beauty is all really just in your head. Or it could be, friend, that you weren't just made to survive, that you were made to worship. And that the God who made you is the only thing big enough and beautiful enough to ever fulfill the greatest longing of your heart. See, we Christians, we don't believe that we are missing out on anything in this world by foregoing certain pleasurable things for a time. No, we believe that we are actually headed toward the most enjoyable, most captivating thing of all, the thing we were all made for, to worship the God who made us, to actually gaze upon him. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, understand that that future that Christians look forward to would be very different for you if you tried to enter God's heaven without a relationship with Jesus. The Bible tells us that if you are to arrive on that day of judgment based on your own merit or, or based on your own trying to live as a good person, that you will find nothing but dread and terror and sorrow on that day. That the God who's revealed himself to us in nature has also revealed himself to us in the Bible, and that that God is holy and just, and that if you try to waltz into that God's heaven on your own, you will find nothing but doom because of the guilt of your sin. But friend, that God is also merciful, and he has made a way that you can no longer have dread for that final day when you will meet him, that you can instead look forward to it with longing, If you will come to him on his terms, if you will come to him through Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus Christ is God's way to save sinners that have no right to have this beautiful vision of God. Jesus came and lived the life we should have. And on the cross, he paid the penalty that sinners like you and me deserve. If you'll trust that he really is the one that came to do that, and if you'll trust that he really can save you from your sins, then friends, your eternal destiny will be forever changed. You will find the final day of judgment to be a day of delight, not of dread. If you need to know how that could be true in your life, friend, at the end of the service, come forward. There'll be someone here that you can pray with that would love to explain more about how it is you can become a Christian. Now, for those of us who are Christians, I hope your heart longs for that day and realize that it 
can actually help you to live faithfully for Jesus today. Think about the fact that your eyes are made to bring the greatest sense of pleasure that your soul could ever long for. But that that pleasure is to be received from seeing God, not from seeing the things this world tells you will bring you pleasure. Men, you have to fight for purity until the day you die. When your gaze is drawn to somewhere you know it should not go, think of what your gaze will see one day. In that moment when God is the furthest thing from your mind, would you remind yourself that there will be a day when God will consume all of your attention. And on that day, you will see he has been worth everything that you withheld yourself, that his beauty will make everything that you endured worth it. To all of us, this should give us hope that our best days are in front of us, no matter what age or stage we're in. Whether you are a teenager or or newly married or an empty nester or maybe you are uh, at the point where life seems like it's slowing down and you can do less and less with each passing year, friend, you have not missed out on anything. The best thing you will ever experience is still coming in a day ahead. Would you let that fortify your heart this morning? Jesus reminds us through these two prayers of the things that we most desperately need. We need to be united. And we need to be welcomed in his heaven to gaze on his glory. But it's not just two prayers that Jesus has for us. He also has a promise for us. And that's what we see at the end of this, the sweetest section of scripture. Verses 25 and 26, as he ends this high priestly prayer, Jesus promises that we will be indwelled by him, that he will actually come and make his home with us. In verse 25, he recaps what his ministry has been on this earth. He says, oh, righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. Jesus has come to reveal God to a world that does not know him, and he has found, just as predicted, that the world does not want to know the creator that made them. And yet, even amongst this world that wishes that God would not show himself, Jesus has brought out a group, his first disciples, and all those who believe down the line through them, like us. And Jesus has done the work of revealing the Father to us. Jesus has spent his earthly ministry doing that, and now in verse 26, he tells us what's ahead. He said, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says that there will be three things that he will do He will continue to reveal the Father to those disciples. We know that has occurred through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the first apostles as they wrote down the scriptures for us. Jesus was faithful to that very promise. We can truly know the Father because his disciples faithfully passed down the gospel and the scriptures themselves. He says, second, 
that the love from the Father will be present in us. That the love that the Father gave Jesus is actually going to be present in our hearts. How amazing of a promise is that? When we're asked to love someone that's hard to love, it's not because we have to just grit our teeth and do it. It's because our heart has had an injection of the love of the very Father to Jesus. Now from Jesus to us and from us to each other. Then the third way that Jesus does this is he tells us that he will come and live with us. The very last phrase there, that love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I in them. Earlier, Jesus prayed that we would be in him and in his father. Now, Jesus prays the opposite direction, promising that he will come and live inside each and every one of his disciples. This is the great fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, God himself living with us. How did God fulfill that promise in the man named Jesus Christ, in his work on this earth to draw people who had no rights to be called friends of God. They were his enemies. But to draw them close to the God who made them by dying for them on the cross. Now this Jesus ushers us into a forever relationship with God. He welcomes us into heaven itself, not, not as strangers, but as his dear friends, those who he lives inside of. This means we, even now, have begun to taste that beautiful heart enlarging reality of a forever relationship with God, of beholding his glory and finding every pleasure met in the God who made us. Our brothers and sisters, what should you do with this? What should you do with this? Well, you should worship. You should worship. You should sing about him. You should pray to him. You should smile for no reason at all except you thought about him. You should bow down on your knees. You should raise your hands. You should open wide your heart. And let that love that Jesus has placed there spill out so that the whole world could see that Jesus Christ, sent from the Father, has made a way for rebel, sinful creatures to come know the God who made them. Brothers and sisters, is this Jesus worthy to be worshipped? I say, and the scriptures say, he is. Let's pray.